Luke chapter 21, verse 37. The last few months we've uh, been going through Luke and the, the Passion Week, which a lot of Christians and theologians call this the Passion Week. It's the last week of Jesus' life, and honestly, it's the most important week of all of Scripture. The whole Old Testament points forward to this week, and the whole New Testament points back to what happened during this week. And I want you to think about this. Hebrew and Greek, unlike modern times, it didn't have exclamation points. And in our modern times, when we write something, we can bold something or highlight something to say, hey, this is really important. Hebrew, Hebrew and Greek in, in, in your scriptures didn't have these tools. And so they used other techniques to say, hey, this is a really important passage. Two main ways they did this was, one, they repeated it. So if it was something very important in Scripture, the, the author would repeat it, and this includes stories. So if a story was extremely important, the story would be repeated twice, and, and that says a lot because it was hard to write. Um, it took time to write, and paper and, and everything that they wrote on cost a lot of money. So to repeat a story, said the author is saying, hey, this is extremely important. An example of this would be uh, Paul's conversion. It's repeated twice in Acts. Uh, Acts 9, it's, it's, um, the story is given, and then Acts 26, it's given again. Right? So the first way an author would say, hey, this is really important, is repeated. Another way would be just giving a lot of details or, or giving the story a lot of attention, giving it, uh, uh, writing a lot about it. That would be an author's way of saying this is important. A good example of this is the story of Joseph. Have you guys ever paid attention to how long the story of Joseph is in Genesis? Chapter 37 to 50, 13 chapters worth. And that's the way Moses is saying, hey, this is a really important story. And there's actually a third way saying that a story is extremely important is by combining these two things. So if you come across a story that is repeated, and in each time it's given, there's a ton of details, and it's, it's a long, um, the story has a, uh, is really long, then the author is saying, hey, this is a really extremely important story. Pay attention to this. And, and a great example, I believe, is uh, the com- uh, conversion of Cornelius in Acts. Chapter 10, you get the story, and then right after that, chapter 11, you get the story again. And there is a ton of details. It's two full chapters of this conversion. And this is Luke, who's the author in Acts, saying, this is an extremely important story in Acts. And in, and in the story of Acts, this, this, this is something you need to pay attention to. So with that said, I want you to think about this. There are four Gospels, four Gospels, all inspired by God, meaning God wanted there to be four of them. And all of them repeat themselves. It's the same story. There's three of the four that that are almost word for word at points repeating themselves. All of them have different points of views and different emphasis, but there's four of them that are repeated, and all four of the Gospels are long. I mean, there's a ton of details. They're four of the longest books in the New Testament. Honestly, if you, or if you did the order of the longest book to the shortest book in the New Testament, it goes like this. Luke is the longest book in the New Testament. If you go by words, not chapters. Luke, then Acts, then Matthew, John, Mark. Then all the rest of the, the New Testament books. So four out of the five longest books of the New Testament are books that repeat themselves. I think God's trying to tell us something, right? The life and ministry of Jesus is important. 
It's the focal point of all scripture. The Old Testament points to it. The New Testament points back to it. Now, I want you to think about this, because most of us would say, yeah, that's pretty common, common knowledge. I get that. There is more written on the last week of Jesus' life than any other part of his life and ministry in the Gospels. And not just more, but a lot more. A third of Matthew is one week of Jesus' life. The last week, the Passions Week, chapters 21 through 28. A third of Mark, one week of Jesus' life, chapters 11 through 16. A third of Luke, one week of Jesus' life, chapters 19 through 24. And nearly half of John is Jesus' last week, chapters 12 through 20. They're all focused on one week. It's the most important week of Scripture. It's the most important week of human history. And it's what we've been studying for the last few months and will continue to study. Jesus' death is looming, it's coming, and there's drama that is unfolding during this week. And there are at least five historical characters that play important parts in Jesus' death and resurrection. And all five are found in the passage I want to go over today. They are the chief priests and scribes, the disciples, Judas, Satan, and Jesus. All of them are found in the passage this morning, so if you would follow along as I read, Luke chapter 21, verse 37, starts by saying, And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount, mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred uh, with the chief priests and officers how he might uh, betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover land had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher uh, says to you, where is the guest room where um, I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare it, for, uh, prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover." Five characters in that portion of scripture, and there are five characters I want to want to go over today and look at each one of them, starting with the chief priests and scribes. Let me just read again. Verse 1 of chapter 22 says this, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. This would be Thursday in the Passion Week. Friday is when Jesus will be crucified. This is the day before Thursday. Verse 2 says, And the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. This is Thursday, meaning all day Monday through Wednesday, Jesus has been teaching in the temple. And that says that in verse 37 in chapter 21. It says, all day he was teaching in the temple. And he was teaching blunt and forcibly. 
We've talked about this. He, he's on attack, and his aim has been at the priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. Matthew 23 records some of it, and just listen to this. It says in verse 13, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Verse 16 says, Woe to you, you blind guides. Verse 23 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Verse 25, Woe to you, verse 27, Woe to you, Verse 29, woe to you. Jesus is on attack. That word woe means judgment on you. Monday through Wednesday, Jesus has been relentlessly calling out the religious leaders for their hypocrisy, their self-righteousness, and their evil ways. And because of this, the chief priests and scribes wanted him dead. They wanted him out of there. So look at chapter 22, verse 2. It says this, And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. They wanted him dead, but they they were stuck in a dilemma. They wanted Jesus dead all week, but they feared the people. Right? If they arrested Jesus in front of the people, so many people were, were excited about Jesus and following Jesus and listening to his teaching that they feared a riot, that, that all the people would harm the Pharisees and religious people for trying to arrest Jesus. But they couldn't find Jesus at night to arrest him quietly. Luke twenty one thirty seven says that Jesus would sneak away at night and lodge in the Mount of Olives. So he would teach during the day, and then at night he would lodge where the Pharisees and Sadducees and the scribes and chief priests didn't know where he was at. So they were stuck in this dilemma. We can't arrest him during the day, but we don't know where he is at night. They wanted Jesus Ted, but they couldn't find him to arrest him quietly. Which leads us to our second character of this story, and that's the disciples. As all of this is going on, I believe the disciples were completely ignorant. They didn't know what was about to take place. They had no idea that the next day Jesus would be dying on the cross. Look at 22 verse 7. Then came the day of unlimited bread, on which the Passover lamb uh, had to be sacrificed. So this is Thursday. Again, the next day Jesus would be crucified. Verse 8. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat of it. And then look at verse 13. It says, and they went and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. Completely normal Passover meal for a Jew. They're following Jesus' instructions to get the Passover meal ready. Even though tensions were high and I know they felt the tension between Jesus and the religious leaders, Everything seemed normal, and to be honest, I think the disciples were completely ignorant, completely ignorant of what was about to take place. Remember, from the beginning, they have had a wrong understanding. If you would, just turn with me to Mark. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. I like the book of Mark. It's my favorite gospel, just because it's short. And that is makes it my favorite gospel because it gives a it gives like the backbone of what happened during Jesus's ministry. It doesn't give as much details as Matthew and Luke and even John. Matthew, Luke and John kind of fill in the details, but Mark gives you a really clear picture of what happened. And so you can read Mark 16 chapters and go, "Oh, this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened," and kind of get your mind wrapped around Jesus's 3 years here on this earth. So I really like Mark and I think it's good and helpful to get us 
understanding what exactly was happening. So look at Mark 1.1. It says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, as Christians in 2018, that isn't that bold of a statement. A lot of us in here might just think Christ is Jesus' last name, which it's not. Christ means Messiah in Greek. If you thought that, I'm that's okay. I thought that growing up. So, um, Christ means Messiah in, in Greek. Mark, Mark's making a big claim here. This is the Christ, Jesus. And he even makes a bigger claim, the Son of God. Right? If you're a Jew in this day and age and read that, you, would have, you would have, may have thrown the book down for heresy if you didn't know who Jesus was. Right? Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. And, and Mark... Then briefly, and again, this is kind of why I like Mark, talks about the baptism, or John the Baptist in the wilderness, the baptism of Jesus, the temptation of Jesus, and the beginning of Jesus' ministry, all in 14 verses. Just flies through it, which leads to verse 16, where he kind of focuses in on his main subject, and that is the disciples. If you look at verse 16, you'll see that the heading in most of your Bibles will be, Jesus calls his first disciples. He starts calling men to follow him who become his disciples. And for the next seven chapters in Mark, Jesus is proving and showing the disciples that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. And he does this by miracles, healings, casting out demons, teaching authoritatively, parables and teachings about the kingdom, the coming kingdom. Right? All things that the Old Testament predicted the Messiah would do. And people were amazed, people were fear, fearful, people were astonished by Jesus, his power, and who he was. That's chapters 1 through 8. Now turn with me to chapter 8, Mark 8, verse 27. And I remind you, Mark is 16 chapters long, meaning chapter 8 is right in the middle of Mark. And in this chapter, there's a huge shift that happens, that happens in every single gospel. A huge shift in Jesus' ministry, especially his interactions with the disciples. Verse 27 says this, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And that's a loaded question. And they said to him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. Right? In other words, people hesitated to call him the Messiah, the Christ. Right? Because that was a big claim. They definitely saw the miracles. They saw his teachings. They say he is from God for sure. A prophet, maybe John the Baptist, maybe Elijah. He is from God, but the Messiah, we're not sure yet. He's not acting the way we thought the Messiah would be acting. So, And so... Look at verse 29. And he, being Jesus, asked them directly, but who do you say that I am? He looks at the disciples and say, that's what people say, but what do you say? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, of course, the one that speaks up, who really just represents all the disciples, answers him and says, you are the Christ. You're him, right? You're who the whole Old Testament's been pointing to. You are the Messiah, and Jesus responds in Matthew saying, Blessed are you, Simon. Right? In other words, you're right. You're right. That's who I am. You got it right, Peter. I am the Christ. But then Jesus, as normal, 
does something that we wouldn't expect. He does something really weird. Look at verse 30. And he strictly charged them not to tell anyone about him. And then verse 31, and he keeps going. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. I love that phrase. And he said this plainly. Because Jesus didn't always speak plainly. Sometimes he spoke so deeply, it's just hard to understand what he was saying. Blessed are the poor? How's that work? Right? Or he's speaking parables, riddles that, that, that uh, most people were confused about. But this time, he spoke plainly. He said, okay, guys, look at me. I'm going to die. You're right. I'm the Christ. I'm going to die. I, I'm going to suffer many things. I'm going to be rejected by the priests and scribes. I will be killed. You got it? Verse 32, of course not. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. You can picture that, just Peter. He makes me laugh. Taking the God of the universe and rebuking him, saying, you don't, you don't die. I know my Old Testament, Jesus. You don't die. You don't go to the cross. Right? You conquer the Romans. You establish a kingdom. And remember, I'm your friend. Look at verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, right? He looks at all the disciples and realizes they're all thinking the same exact thing Peter is. He was just the bold enough one to go up and rebuke Jesus. And turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. And that's a harsh rebuke. For you are not setting your minds on the things of God, but on the things of man. Here's the point. Peter and the disciples didn't get it. <laughs> they didn't get it. Right? They thought Jesus was going to come be this, this, this warrior Messiah that would overthrow the Romans, establish Jerusalem as a kingdom, and that he would be a geopolitical king, meaning geo-earth political politics, an earthly king. But Jesus instead says, I'm going to be killed. It didn't make any sense to them. It didn't make any sense to them. You know what? To be honest, I think sometimes we give the disciples way too much credit. Right? I don't know how many sermons or teachings I've heard of, of Peter and the disciples. Just They dropped everything and followed Jesus. Yeah, they dropped everything and followed Jesus because they thought he was going to make them wealthy, powerful, and honored. Right? They didn't get it. That's, that's, that's why Jesus says in, in verse 33, look, you are not setting your minds on the things of God, but on the things of man. You don't get it. I'm going to die. You're thinking of earthly things, right? I'm thinking of heavenly things. I need, I need to die so you can spend eternity with me in heaven. You're thinking of this earth only. Let me remind you, this is right in the middle of Mark chapter 8, again, of 16. From here on out, there's a switch that happens. And Jesus starts focusing on the disciples and starts preparing them for his death. Turn to, to Mark 9, verse 31. It says this in verse 31, For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Right? 
clearly, clear teaching, very simple. Look at verse 32. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And not only that, look at verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. In other words, they're saying when, when, when he conquers the Romans and establishes the kingdom, which one of us are going to be like, it's going to be me, that second in command. Well, no, it's going to be me. I'm going to be the greatest. Now look at Mark 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Right? They're heading to Jerusalem. And even Luke says, like, Jesus set his face to Jerusalem to die. He says he set his face to Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem. And Jesus knows what's going to happen there. And they were on the road going to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And, and taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, okay, listen. We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. You got it? Going to Jerusalem, delivered. They will mock me, spit on me. They will kill me. Do You got it. Of course not. Look at verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. It's like a two-year-old. They say yes to the question I'm about to ask you. Verse 36, and he said, and he said to them, what do you want from me, me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one on your right hand and one on your left, in your glory. Hey, Jesus, when you, when you overthrow the Romans and establish your kingdom, <laughs> uh, could you make a second and third in command? I'm just picturing Jesus after he hears this going. <laughs> I mean, why didn't they get it? Why didn't they get it? Jesus couldn't have been more clear. I picture him speaking slowly, plain language, making sure there's eye contact. Why? Well, one reason is that it didn't fit their preconceived ideas. It didn't fit their preconceived ideas. Listen, false expectations are powerful. False expectations are powerful. They will ruin relationships. They will ruin marriages. They will ruin parenting with your kids. False expectations are powerful. They had this false expectation that Jesus was going to be this geopolitical, earthly king... And their heart was so set on earthly wealth and, and prestige that it blinded them. And they didn't want to hear the truth. But there's actually another reason. If you would, turn to Luke 18, verse 31. I might have you jumping around the Bible this morning, but I think this will help us understand exactly what's going on this week with the disciples. And as we get to Gethsemane and the cross, I think it will make more sense what happened and why it happened. Luke 18.31 says this, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, 
And everything that is written about the Son of Man and the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise. But they, they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. And they did not grasp what was said. Did you guys catch that? This saying was hidden from them. Actually, Luke 9, 45, don't turn there, but it says something very similar. It says this, but they did not understand this saying. Again, it was the same teaching. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. They didn't get it, and it was concealed, and the Greek word means hidden. It was hidden from them so that they may not perceive it. It was hidden from them. Even though Jesus spoke plainly to them, they didn't get it. They were ignorant until after the resurrection. After the resurrection. God hid this knowledge of the cross from the disciples till the resurrection. And I believe he did this out of his mercy because I believe they couldn't handle that knowledge in that moment. If, if they've truly grasped what Jesus was saying, that, hey, he's really going to die and then we're going to be persecuted after he dies, they would have said, I'm out of here. Right? I didn't sign up for this. They were only ready to understand this truth after the resurrection when Jesus proved who he truly was. And God would bring remembrance of Jesus' teachings to them. That's what John 14, 26 says this, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father... Uh, will send in my name. He's going to come. He will teach you. He's telling the disciples this. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. After the resurrection, they're like, oh yeah. He said this would happen. And it would build their faith. Therefore, as the disciples were getting the Passover meal ready on Thursday, the day before the crucifixion, I believe they had no idea what was about to happen. Not one disciple had a clue of what was about to happen the next day except one, Judas. That's his third character I want to look at this morning. Remember, Wednesday afternoon we preached on last week was the Olivet Discourse. Jesus was predicting what was going to happen. And it's where Jesus taught, hey, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. The temple is going to be destroyed. And guess what? You're going to be heavily persecuted. The disciples thought he was speaking in par- parables or riddles. They just didn't get it. All of them, I believe, except for Judas. I think at that moment he got it. He really means it. <laughs> he, he really is going to die. The priests, and, the priests and scribes are going to kill him. And he wants us to follow him. Be beat, be in prison, even die. He wants us to pick up our cross and follow him. Look at verse tw- or chapter 22, verse 3. At that moment, I believe, then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. 
we know that Judas from the beginning has always been about money. He started following Jesus again, like all the disciples, thinking that this Messiah would bring him wealth and prestige, that this guy is going to make an earthly kingdom that will be the biggest kingdom of them all, and I'm going to be friends with him. He even was a thief. John 12, 6 says he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it, the money that they gathered for the poor and for other people. He would just steal it. And when he figured it out that Jesus was truly going to die, he decided to save his own skin and betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. This is what one commentator said about Judas, and I I loved how he put it. So uh, he says this, Once Satan entered into Judas, the plan was set into motion. Judas went away, most likely that Wednesday night, and because, uh, and discuss with the chief priests and officers how he might betray Jesus to them. They, of course, were glad since um, this was the answer to their dilemma of how to seize Jesus privately and agreed to give Judas the money he sought. But the best deal Judas could negotiate was not a good one. Thirty pieces of silver was an insignificant sum. Nonetheless, Judas agreed, taking what he could get, and began seeking an opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. This is perfect. They wanted to arrest Jesus quietly. They didn't know where Jesus was at night, but his disciples did, and they have one that says, hey, I'll tell you where he is. This leads us to the fourth character, which is Satan. Look at verse 3. Luke 22, verse 3 says this, Then Satan entered into Judas. This really confused me as I was studying this week, and honestly, I know this passage, I've always been somewhat like, well, I don't get it. Why would Satan encourage Judas to portray Jesus, which would lead Jesus to the cross, which ultimately would bring victory to Jesus over Satan? Like, that doesn't make sense to me. And, and, and I, I read commentaries that say, well, Satan didn't know. He, was, he, he, he didn't know that this would, the cross would lead to his final um, destruction. Satan's smarter than that. The whole Old Testament points to it. He knew what was going on, right? The Old Testament, throughout the whole Old Testament, he was trying to stop the seed from coming. And when the seed finally comes in Jesus Christ, the, you see him trying to avoid the cross and the temptations of Jesus, Right? He's trying to get Jesus to skip the cross in Matthew 4, 8. It says this, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. In other words, he says, Your father wants to give you all these things, but he's not even feeding you right now. And he's saying you have to go through the cross before you get him. If you worship me, I'll give, you, give him to you without the cross. He doesn't want Jesus to go to the cross. That's why in Mark 8, Jesus calls Peter Satan. When Peter was saying, you don't go to the cross, he says, get behind me, Satan. Or what about the Garden of Gethsemane? Satan is tempting Jesus to be disobedient and walk away from the cross. So why did Satan enter into Judas to have him betray Jesus, knowing that it would lead to the cross? I don't know. (laughs) And the Bible doesn't tell us, but here's my guess. And I take this from John Piper, so it's a better guess than my guess. At this point, Satan knew things were heading to the cross and there was no turning back. So he wanted to make it as painful as possible for Christ. So he took a dear friend that he's been with for three years and tempted him to betray him 
that would lead him to the cross, knowing that the cross would be that much more painful. And we know that it was painful because it was predicted in the Old Testament. Psalms 55, 12 is a prophecy of, of Judas. And I want you to, I'm just going to read it real quick. I want you to hear the anguish of the Messiah. Okay, just listen to this. It says in, in, in Psalms 55, 12, it is not an enemy who taunts me. I could bear that. It's not my foes who, are, who so arrogantly, arrogantly insult me. I could have hidden from them. Instead, it is you. My equal, my companion, a close friend. What good fellowship we once enjoyed as we walked together to the house of God. I believe Satan was trying to make the cross as painful as he could. And I, I, I think as we get to the Garden of Gethsemane, Satan is going to tempt Jesus saying, Why would you die for these people? Look, they all have ran away and that one betrayed you. Why would you die for any of these humans? I think it was part of Satan's plan from the beginning. Which leads us to the last character. Of course, Jesus. As all this drama is unfolding around him, right, the Bible makes something very clear. Jesus was in complete control. Right? Everyone else thought they were in control of what was going on, and Jesus was the one that was in complete control. Look at verse 7 in chapter 22. Luke 22, verse 7. It says this, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. And uh, tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may go eat the Passover um, with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had uh, told them, and they prepared the Passover. Right? Doesn't that doesn't seem like elaborate? Why did Jesus say, hey, we're going to have it on the corner of Moon and Bright Valley. Right, some of you laughed. First service, no one laughed at that one. <laughs> I mean, they, they knew Jerusalem really well. Why didn't Jesus just say, it's the big house down the street, right? He had this elaborate plan. The reason is he knew exactly what was happening around him. Right, he knew the priests and scribes were planning on killing him. That's why he went out every night, right? He predicted it over and over again. They're going to arrest me, and they're going to hand me over to the Romans, Right? He also knew Judas was about to betray him. He predicted that. But that's why Jesus, uh, um, and that's why Jesus didn't tell the disciples where he was going to have the Passover meal. When you think about this, instead of telling the disciples when they asked, where will you have, have, um, have us prepare at the Passover meals, he only sends Peter and John out. And he doesn't tell him where, as all the disciples are listening. He says this, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Just so you know, that was very unusual in that day and age. Only women carried jars of water. So that would have been very obvious. Walk in, hey, there's a guy carrying water. That's weird. Okay? So I've heard two different things. One, Jesus knew supernaturally that a guy would be carrying water for some odd reason, and that guy would lead him to a house where they were going to have a Passover meal. Or two, Jesus prepared this beforehand, told the guy, hey, 
carry a jar of water, disciples are going to find you, and then take him back to so-and-so that knows that we're going to have it there. I don't know which one it is, but Jesus knew exactly what was going on. Following him into the house, he enters, verse 11, and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Again, he only sends Peter and John. Because he didn't want Judas to know where the Passover meal was going to happen. Because it would have been a perfect opportunity to betray Jesus. Passover meal would have been quiet. It would not have been in the temple. It would not have been in front of crowds. They could have quietly snuck into the room, pulled Jesus off, and arrested him. And Jesus was going to have the Passover meal with his disciples. Jesus even proclaims, I I earnestly looked forward to this. I'm not going to be interrupted. Jesus is going to determine when and how he will be killed. Listen, I want to be just extremely clear about this. The the priests and scribes were not in control of this week. The Roman government was not in control of this week, although both of them thought they were. Judas was not in control of this week, and Satan was not in control of this week. Jesus was in control of everything. One theologian said this, Jesus was not killed because the plan went wrong. He did not die simply because human hate or human injustice, nor because God could not prevent it. What might appear to be an act of injustice on the part of God is in reality an act of divine power and justice motivated by pure love and grace for us. Christ's death was was God's provision for the redemption of sinners. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So when all this drama is unfolding around Jesus, he knew exactly what was going on and he was in complete control. So what can we learn from this passage? I think we could learn a lot. And I actually had a huge application part, but I knew I'd get to this point and see that I have eight minutes. And so I threw, threw a lot of it out. Um, I mean, you talk about the hip- hypocrisy of the religious leaders or the greed of Judas, the love of money that led to destruction, or the love of Jesus and, and, and God's sovereign plan that Jesus went willfully to the cross, like, like Isaac, walking up the mountain, holding the wood that he would be sacrificed on, Jesus was a willful sacrifice because he loved us. But I want to focus on the disciples. And one truth in particular, and this just kind of stuck out to me, and I think it's relevant for where we're at as a church right now. Sometimes God does not reveal everything to us for our own good. God hid the knowledge of the cross from disciples till after the resurrection for their own good. And God doesn't ever promise to tell us everything. He does promise that he has told us everything that we need to know. 2 Timothy 2 or 2 Timothy 3:15 through 17 says this, you have been acquainted with the, the sacred writings, the scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, or for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
The Bible is revelation, God revealing. That, that's what that word revelation means. He's revealing truth and knowledge to us. And the Bible is a revelation from God, but it's not a revelation of everything. It's a revelation of what we need to know. There are still many mysteries that God has not revealed to us. And many, many mysteries. As you study Scripture more and more, you realize the, the little you actually know. And in those mysteries, in those unknowns, really we're called to do two things over and over and over again in Scripture. Right? First, trust God. And second, obey what he has revealed to us. Stop focusing on the things that he hasn't revealed and focus on the things that he has clearly revealed. And I don't know why we get that mixed up. We do, though. Deuteronomy 29.29 is the verse that we talk about a lot here and quote a lot. It says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, meaning the mysteries of the faith and the things we don't know, they're God's. Just let him have it. And we usually stop there without reading the rest of the verse, but this is what it says. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. The secret things that we don't know belong to him, but the things that he's revealed to us, we better pay attention to. And we better, better do what it says. Right? There's some doctrines out there that are just mysteries. Right? The Trinity, three persons, one God. How's that work? I don't know. The Bible clearly teaches that there's three persons, yet there's one God. Three persons, one essence. Right? I don't know how that works. Or God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. How do those two things go together? My dad saw the passage I was preaching on, and we're at the beach. He goes, hey, Nathan, I have a question for you. Did Judas betray Jesus because God ordained it, or did he do it out of his own free will? Oh, my God. At the beach? Like, I, mean, <laughs> I don't even have my Bible with me. <laughs> right? I mean, it was prophesied hundreds of years before Judas even lived, yet Judas is, is very clearly responsible for his actions. It's both. How does that work? I don't know. Secret things belong to the Lord. I don't know. But the things that are revealed belong to us. You know, it's not just doctrine, although I think some people are afraid of Scripture or say, well, if I can't understand that, I'm not going to listen to any of it. Like, that's prideful, right? The God of the universe has revealed himself to us and there's some things we just have to let, let go, but it's not just doctrine. It's life circumstances, too, that are mysteries, right? Something that rocks your world that doesn't make sense to you. And, and God doesn't always, and honestly, rarely reveals why. Deaths, job loss, broken relationships. I've heard of some, some just horrible news in the last night, this morning, from different people, and I mean, think of Job. I love the book of Job. God's actually revealed to us the backstory of Job. He's revealed that to us. You know who he didn't reveal that to? Job. All Job knew was he lost all of his wealth. He lost his health. He lost his whole entire family. His wife comes and says, curse God and die. And then three friends come and says, oh, your fault. And God, I mean, Job wanted answers. <laughs> He said, God, I, I want you to reveal why this is happening. Reveal this to me. And God never gave him an answer. He just said, I'm God. Job, that's enough. I'm God. 
Trust me and obey. Trust me and obey what you do know. I bring all this up. I just think this is so applicable to our church right now. Um, we're kind of in an unknown right now. I mean, we've, Pastor Brent has some some struggles with his health that are going on, and, and we're praying for answers. I'm really confident we're going to get some. Um, he hasn't been able to meet with a specialist yet, but he's going to, and, and I'm hoping that we get some answers. But God hasn't revealed the answers yet to us, and and we don't have any answers, so we're praying, right? We, we love our pastor, and we're going to miss him this month. And we're hoping to find some answers. We're praying that God reveals some things of what's going on. But I do know this. Till we get answers, and even if we don't get answers, we're called to do two things. Trust God and obey his word. And I'll tell you this. I'm proud of our leadership. I'm proud of the elder board. Those are the two things that I heard when we had a meeting Monday. We've, we found out t- Saturday, preached Sunday, we had a meeting Monday, and it was our elder board. So we're trusting God through this, and we're going to obey what he says. Keep preaching his word. We'll come together as a church. And I'll tell you what, I'm proud of you guys. Last week, I don't know how many people came up to me. Where do I need to serve? What do I need to do to help out as a church body? We came together. It was amazing to see it, and I have people doing that. It's it's. For how much our heart is breaking for Pastor Brent right now, and I pray that we find answers, trust in the Lord and obeying his word. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God Almighty, there is so much comfort in knowing two things. One, that you are a good God, and two, that you're in control of everything. Help us rest in that comfort when we don't know why things are happening in our lives, Lord. I pray that we just trust you through them and that in those times we are more diligent to just obey your word. Going, our flesh wants us to do this, Lord, but you told us this is better, so we're going to follow what you say. Lord, I pray for our church, Lord. I pray for protection. I pray that your hand is over us, Lord. I pray for Pastor Brent, Lord, our brother. We love him. We're so thankful for him and his ministry that he's had here, Lord. We pray that you bring health you bring some knowledge. You bring, bring doctors that can, can share some light in exactly what's going on with them, Lord. And that, that through it all, we're trusting you, Lord. So be with us as a church. In your son's name, amen.